This is 3P Theory, the podcast for AEC professionals seeking to elevate their knowledge on green building strategies and practical design collaboration for sustainable mindsets, bringing you changemakers, innovators, and sustainable leaders who have positively impacted the industry. It's time to get inspired, motivated, and fired up to take action towards a greener planet. Here's your host, Mike Brown. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of 3P Theory. And today I have a very special guest I would like to introduce you all to. It's going to talk to us about some of the ideology around integrative design and the process and how it should be integrated for high-performance buildings. So we have Bill Reed here with us. And Bill, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this realm? Probably something that a lot of people typically wouldn't jump right into. The integrative realm or the green realm or, well, both, I guess. Uh, both, really. <laughs> sure. So, so I've been doing, um, I, I started out as, a, as an architect and planner, always looking for how one engages and improves quality of life. It's all about me after all, right? You know, so I want a beautiful building, a beautiful house, comfortable environment. And uh, I realized that architecture alone wasn't going to do that. So I became a planner because the context is important. And the planning industry never made much sense to me until the sustainability movement came along. So I dropped out of the planning world previous to that and became an energy efficiency guy, one of the early passive solar architects in the 70s. So I've always been involved in green, quality of life, energy efficiency, climate change issues. And then uh, we realized that energy wasn't really adequate and the US Green Building Council was being formed. So I jumped on that ship. And that's when we decided to do the LEED program. I'm one of the founders of that. And integral to LEED, of course, is integrative design. In fact, the LEED accredited professional question was originally meant to be about one's capability to deliver integrative systems thinking. No one understood that or appreciated it, so it became, or very few, I should say, so it became more of a checklist on how one gets certified. You know, like you actually understand the certification process. And it's taken LEED until lead 4.0 to actually begin to embrace integrative systems thinking. So we went off on our own, wrote a book with the seven group, uh, the ANSI standard on integrative systems design. And um, the question emerged, where does one stop integrating? And the answer is probably never, (laughs) which leads you right into metaphysics and our role as humans on the planet and our role with nature and how humans and nature can become more integrated, which leads into the regenerative world that I practice in now. Great. Hope that's a a long but quick summary. (laughs) No, that's an incredible overview. And I know there's a a lot of accomplishments as well that we'll, we'll touch on in the bio and other resources that we'll provide to some of the listeners. But it's really, it's really interesting how that holistic thinking really helps advance projects. And I know sometimes I, I battle with trying to not be one-sided and focusing just on energy because there's many, many other aspects uh, that have synergies as well among some of those strategies that may be implemented on a project. May I interject something on that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, we have a big focus on climate change for every good reason right now. But let's think about that logically. If we solve climate change, like let's say that cold fusion is proved viable and we have it distributed everywhere tomorrow, we will still be destroying the earth. Exactly. So it isn't just about, in fact, the problem is, is that when we try to solve problems instead of working with the system, 
because problems fragment the world. And that gets right to the root of integration. Is if we, if we divide the world into problems, three or 400 other problems emerge. It's when we look at the potential or the arc of life, which I know it sounds incredibly arcane and strange, but if we work on potential and not problems, we actually can address all those problems. The problems actually disappear in this service of potential, which I would like to touch on today because that is an incredibly important concept. And I'm sure it sounded incredibly confusing to the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah, no, if we can dive into that, that's fine. And I think that a lot of times kind of what you're alluding to is that, you know, with all those problems brings complexity and, you know, with the many, many parameters and constraints that projects have, whether it's cost or schedule and things of that nature, people tend to somewhat oversimplify some of those issues and neglect others. So I think, yeah, that's definitely uh, an area that we want to try and dig into. Okay. Well, I'm happy to go there right now, but you might have a different, uh, a cunning plan here, Mike. So, <laughs> No, feel free. Feel free. <laughs> All right. Well, let me give an example. The concept of potential is difficult to understand. Let me illustrate it through a story, actually a couple stories. So we are working on, uh, John Becker and I were working on a project in Vancouver, a wastewater treatment plant, and there were 24 communities who were all against the wastewater treatment plant for various reasons. And the project director said, the primary goal on this project is to keep the utility tariffs low, right? It's all about the taxes. So keep it low. That's our job. Save money. And it turned out that once we looked at the project as a way to add potential health, the potential of health to the North Vancouver region, in terms of ecology, in terms of social interaction, in terms of everybody knew they needed to treat the waste. That was not the problem. It was you know, the nature of the design of the plant. But instead of actually focusing on the plant as an object, we focused on the whole social ecological system of North Vancouver as the potential to work on together as these communities. Within six months, there was no opposition to the plant and money was actually never mentioned again as an issue. Hmm. So. Does that help give it you a little potential is really powerfully, you know, it's what we can all work towards instead of what we can all prevent. Correct. And you bring up a good point there too, is the concept that, you know, oftentimes a lot of projects, I guess I speak to, I guess, single buildings, or you can even do this on a campus as people sometimes don't think beyond the boundaries of the site and how that impacts things or how that impacts the community, the local, you know, air quality, things of that nature as well. And so that's a, a huge missed opportunity, especially when individuals are brought on later in the project phase, when they do start to have some of those community meetings at that point, you're kind of too far down the road to really make any impactful changes. So. Absolutely right. And then you're presenting the community a design that look, you know, basically putting them on my architect's hat. Look what I've created. Look at this beautiful <laughs> building I've created. You're going to love it. And of course, why would they love it? They have no context to understand. Mm -hmm. So, and we're working with developers now who've discovered that. And they say, we laugh all the way to the bank because we never start out with a design. We never start out even with a proposal. We actually get to know the community first. One of the rules that we make when we work with communities, the developer deserves a profit and that's all the developer deserves, not to impose an idea on the community. So we said, as long as the developer can come away with a profit and no one's ever pushed against that, by the way. Well, one exception, but 
most people say, well, of course, the developer deserves a profit, but they don't deserve to actually foist their vision on us. If we can actually work together, instead of a transactional relationship where the developer says, I'll give you a, a school, right? Or I'll give you a firehouse or a park. If you give us permission to do this, we actually engage the developer to be a stakeholder, an equal stakeholder, no more important, no less important with the community and the ecosystem. The ecosystem's a stakeholder too. And how do we actually add value for all those dimensions, the social, the human development, the infrastructure, the cultural community and economic and environment, obviously. So how do we add value in all those arenas? And that's a much different problem than just doing an object. It's actually how do we add value and how do we continue to add value after the project is theoretically done? At least exactly. substantial exactly. Now there's a whole role for architects there, brother, that <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, you know, it's remarkable how much opportunity we leave on the ground by thinking that we're delivering an object. You know, especially green architecture, where we're theoretically going to be, um, you know, creating a sustainable planet. But all we're doing with green buildings is slowing down the damage. We aren't creating sustainability. We're creating green, which is good, but it's inadequate. How do we engage the living systems in that building and integrate the birds, the trees, the soil, the humans? Mm -hmm. Those are all living entities. We can actually help them, and that relationship carries on beyond the building of the, the construction itself. I'm probably babbling now, so I better stop. No, no, that, that makes perfect sense. And that makes me remember a graphic, which I'll share with the listeners uh, as one of the resources that shows, you know, how kind of what has been done or it's what's being done and doing less harm and kind of elevating that, you know, a couple of steps above to have more regenerative approach to restorative and then regenerative. Are you talking about the graphic that we produced? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that graphic speaks to a lot of kind of obviously where people want to transition to, but it's a matter of how quickly can you get there. And also kind of what you alluded to is changing the mindset. Exactly. Um, And I'm not sure how much of this is, I guess, being taught, you know, in architecture schools and if they're actually, you know, embodying that in their design projects uh, and senior design projects at all, but you know, no, you know, I just got, I just got off the uh, email with, um, well, I won't name the school and they could not understand the course description we were offering. Now we've offered this course at other schools around the world. So we know it's un- intelligible, but this is actually one of the most well-known universities in the world. And <laughs> it was hard to understand because it didn't actually fit their worldview right? So because it actually challenged their worldview, it meant that students were going to be challenged and therefore we can't offer the course, which is exactly the problem we have is that we have to actually change our mindsets. Now, you know, I admittedly, you could actually say that. And I used to say that in the course, this is not the typical course, right? This is about changing the way you view the world and your role in it. This is not going to be easy and this will be challenging to you. And basically, that's the way we start out our relationship with our clients now, Mike, is that we, we actually challenge them that this is going to be difficult and it's going to be incredibly important. Are you up for that? Hmm. And if they aren't, we really don't take them as a client because it's not the game. It's not, I use the word game. Uh, I let one article talked about all sustainability is really about is staying in the game of evolution. Hmm. And until we actually 
learn to understand that we are involved in a dynamic, continually transforming role, ourselves, our families, our offices, and the ecosystem we live within, the social ecosystem we live in, we will never really play this game appropriately. Because when we try to create static objects, we actually are not, we're we're basically playing into a mechanical worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've seen a few projects try to attempt, and you've probably seen this before too, where at least on the consulting side, architects or other consultants will try to infuse some of that framework within the RFP as they're hiring on consultants and things of that nature, whether it be for, you know, performance modeling or integrative design meetings and things of that nature, but they don't really seem to pan out when project teams are bought on board or those consultants are bought on board. Why do you think that is? I mean, is it a, yeah, why do you, th- I'm going to ask that to you. Why do you think that is? <laughs> well, I mean, for one, I think it has to do with the fact that the majority of the, the team members aren't on board soon enough and some decisions that could affect other consultants are made before they even come on board. And then also, I'm not sure if there's a real buy-in from those individuals, whether they charge an extra fee for that or not, to be a part of that integrative process and have those multiple meetings and, and, and check-ins and evaluations. But, um, you know, I think sometimes when the cost conversation comes up mm-hmm. and how this process could influence or impede upon that or delay the project. I think there's a lot of stigma around, you know, what this does to not help the project, but hinder the project. Yeah. And that's true. That is the restraint we hear all the time. And our experience is that is zero true, 0% true, but there's nothing to prove it. So we don't have enough case studies, enough um, critical, um, statistical density to valid density to um, I'm not using the right terminology there, but anyway, the right number of statistics to be able to validate that claim. And everybody says, well, where have you done this before? And how is this going to work on my project? We don't know how it's going to work in your project. This is emerging. It's always emerging. Exactly. So it is an act of faith that you, you do to, to engage this way. But I think it's really important. Now let's be really practical because we've faced this for decades in our work. And how we get around this is we do what we call a part A and a part B contract. You want me to talk about that level of practicality? Yeah, yeah, I think that would be beneficial. So because we don't know the nature of the project, well here, imagine an RFP that says, we want this project to achieve a lead platinum or a living building challenge, doesn't really matter, whatever. So. To what level is each consultant going to have to work? Let's take a lead gold, for instance. Are we going to go after energy? Are we going to go after 50% energy? Are we going to go after 80% energy? Are we going to go after the materials credits? Are we going to punt on those because they're hard? You know, this kind of thing. And so how do you develop a fee with that, right? And I'm going to ask you, how do you guys develop a fee for that kind of RFP? Well, when we develop an RFP, we kind of have a framework now, and it's, and I'm only really speaking from the energy performance, daylighting perspective of things, is kind of embodying, I don't know if you're familiar with the ASHRAE Standard 209 framework. I'm uh, not, actually. It's essentially a framework that's been put together. It's still emerging, a standard. And so it goes through these different, uh, I guess, modeling cycles, if you will, 
within each phase of the design process. Cool. So it's an iterative model. Exactly. And it, it talks about the purpose. So, you know, one of them could be load reduction modeling. One could be uh, benchmarking. That, and there's mandatory pieces to that as well that you have to do. And then you choose so many of the cycles. And it goes from early design all the way into post-occupancy. And I'm using that model to help with the commissioning process as well. That's great. You can expand that as far as you want and get it really, really detailed and advanced with it, or you can just do some of the minimum requirements. And so what we've done is we've kind of built some of those aspects into RFP, and this speaks more to obviously MEP uh, more than anything, but even also on projects because, you know, we're an architecture firm that has modeling and uh, design performance uh, services in-house. But then obviously also some of those MEP firms offer those. And so on those projects, we have to craft it in a way that allows us to have some shared responsibility and not necessarily have, you know, MEP doing everything and so on and so forth. Because what I find is, and kind of having two perspectives, because I started out working for an MEP firm, now with an architecture firm, is that, you know, the conversations and the dialogue and transfer of information isn't perfect but it's much more seamless than if you were trying to do modeling and performance from a consultant standpoint on the outside looking in where you have the data on hand and you're able, you're able to make decisions and inform design in real time. Uh, I'm not saying it's a perfect process, but I think having that level of communication and at least setting the stage in an RFP makes it somewhat clear about what needs to be done and the deliverables that need to be done at each of the phases. Well, so you're right. It's all about communication. But the but is, is when are you going to communicate and are you going to communicate before the RFP is due in terms of how many iterations are you going to do? How many parameters are you going to look at in terms of energy modeling? And so that remains a mystery because the client may not want to spend the money because it's not inexpensive to do that. It's vital, but they may not understand that, right? So you throw out, some firm throws out just a, a one-time, you know, train trace model, load model, right? Calls it a day and another firm goes through 15 parameters and parametric bundles. Mm -hmm. So how do you determine a fee for that? And it's, then you kind of split the middle and if we lose a little money, it's okay, but that's kind of crazy. So what we do is a part A and a part B contract. And the part A contract says, basically defines that level of parameters, whatever they might be that you're going to anticipate. And the engineer does a box model, shoebox model, and they're actually paid to do that. So a week's worth of time, two weeks worth of time. The architect is, is paid for certain basic programming, the landscape architect, species and soil types. Maybe you do a survey then. If, you, if you're doing regenerative work, you would do what we call storying of place. So basically we're developing also a water balance model. We are getting all the kind of what we call a discovery process. And we have a big kickoff workshop where we're coming with all this information and we can decide how far we're going to take the project. So metrics get discussed, how we're going to actually, when we're going to meet, uh, when we're going to integrate together and when those meeting dates would be, what the milestones would be, that all happens at that first charrette. So it's this initial week or two weeks of discovery phase and the charrette, and that's part A. Then once everybody understands that scope, that roadmap and the metrics that they're actually going to, Obviously, it can change, but they're a lot closer to reality than guesswork at a non-communicative RFP. Then you do what we call a Part B contract, and that's the, the full full load, if you will. Okay. Have you guys ever tried that? 
You know, I would now thinking back on it, I mean, what's probably similar is we have an eco charrette that's done on some projects. It's not all projects uh, that kind of embodies uh, that. So we do, and it's really kind of what I, what I envision as kind of a discovery phase for a lot of the designers because, you know, a lot of times they've never seen some of this stuff before, like looking at ecology and looking at economy for that particular site or region uh, before they even really do any deep design. And I, I think you just understand, and it's called nature of place. Um, uh-huh. You've heard that before, but it goes through, I think, um, seven or eight different categories. And so it's kind of a, uh, a research uh, process, if you will, for the design team. Uh, right. We try to infuse consultants into that as well. But it's again, it's not done on every project, and um, something that I think, you know, more needs to be done with. So, yeah, well, good, very similar, but you get the idea. Yeah. Um, so we find that that's really helpful, and it gets the client on board. Now, convincing the client that that's a good idea—that's another thing. So I just actually went through that on a project we're involved in right now, and. Finally, I sent the client, uh, luckily he's a researcher, and I sent him the AS, the ANSI standard on integrative process. And he said, oh, that's what you're saying. I understand so much more. So he was, then he was, so it worked. It, nice. The ANSI standard. So I recommend the ANSI standard so as a basic resource on integrative process. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I want to at least get back to, to, to covering some of the things so I don't forget. <laughs> so, you kind of mentioned it in one of the case studies or projects that you worked on in terms of smart growth and what that means. Could you talk a little bit more about that and what are some of the metrics that should be established? And I know it may vary from project to project that can be used as uh, project drivers uh, to really kind of encourage design team members to, to follow through with that process. Well, I mean, smart growth is, smart growth is kind of a vague catch-all term you know, it's basically, uh, it's urban planning and transportation related that concentrates growth in, uh, you know, compact, walkable urban centers, one kind of generic definition. It actually expands to looking at natural systems. And, but I find it actually is not incredibly useful. And it seems to be not that I don't hear it much anymore. Do you? as a term of art? Not really. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to hear more of the um, low impact development which is kind of a, another framework, but very similar. But I, yeah, I don't hear the term used uh, that often anymore. And you have the Congress of New Urbanism doing probably mm-hmm. more in-depth studies that all that's valuable. And the question to architects, are you doing master planning or you're doing a building? And then where's the boundary in your site? It gets right back to the boundary issue. Exactly. And what is a client willing to pay for? Now, we, we actually find when we're working with developers, yes, there's a boundary around the site, but we love it when the developer is challenged by the community. You know, we don't want this development. We hate large development or it's too large or it's not the right use. And this is when we get hired because we're able to harmonize these negatives by looking at the health of the larger system and how all of us can contribute to the health of the larger system, not just being for or against a development. And that's a very important distinction. Instead of fighting the problem, again, look for the potential of the health of the city or the neighborhood. So when developers come to us with these kind of problems, we then invite the city, the activist groups in the city who are complaining. And usually it's around transportation, of course, and habitat connectivity and social justice and gender equity and um, 
might be if it's a coastal city, beach erosion and climate change, and obviously the, the typical sustainability criteria, there's somebody representing all of those. And what we do is we get them together to work in service of that larger system. So the reason I bring this up is that it is so much less expensive to get people to get to work together rather than fight them yeah. or try to change their <laughs> mind. And that's so hard to believe that we haven't figured that one out as a culture, but we'll hire, we would rather hire the lawyers yeah, because that's the way we've done it before. And we know it worked. So we'll spend, you know, a couple million on lawyers and public relations firms doing spin art, you know, instead of just meeting with the community and saying, let's work this out together because it's, it benefits all of us, right? The developer is certainly interested in a healthy community because that, that's an insurance policy for their investment. Exactly. The community wants a healthy community. So we're all interested in the same thing. We just don't know how to work together to do it. So smart growth, I don't even know what that term means anymore. But, but if we want to be smart about it, we actually need to grow in a way where we're adding value to the systems. And I know smart growth doesn't really characterize it that way, but that's the way we would characterize it in our practice. Are we adding value to the health of the ecosystem, the social system? And is the infrastructure a catalyst for this kind of positive benefit? Let me give you an example of that. So, you know, we work with these metrics. We're working on development in, in Toronto and all the communities were complaining about the developer building on a greenfield. It was actually a, you know, GMO soybean greenfield. So it wasn't very green, but nonetheless, it was green. And it hadn't been built on before. And I'm not trying to justify that, but to say that that was the job. And we basically, everybody said we need water quality is the big deal. And it is not hard. Speaking of low impact development, this is where it came from. Prince George's County in Washington, you know, outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland, developed its low impact development protocol for stormwater management. And so we can actually make any site behave from a water quality standpoint, similar to a forest floor. It's not that difficult. But that's not what the community was really interested in. They didn't want the development. They were just using that as an excuse to, to push the development away. So we flipped that and we said, well, let's, let's look at the larger system. The real largest, the metric for the larger system, re the reason why we're concerned about water quality is because we're concerned about habitat health and the health of Lake Ontario. So what really is important are the salmon or the trout coming back to the stream to spawn. Hmm. So that's a much larger metric. Now, here's what's cool about it is that every community who was complaining about the developer then had to look in the mirror and say, oh, yeah, well, I guess we're responsible for the trout in that stream too. Yeah. So now we have all the stakeholders working on a metric that's meaningful for everybody. Hmm. So it changed the nature of the discussion to be one of inclusive and, and if you will, a request that we all step up to our responsibilities. So yeah. this is where development can actually have a healing influence if we actually work on the larger system. I see. And I know that working on projects very, very early on, it can be challenging. And this is probably, I guess, what sidetracks individuals sometimes as well is not having all the information, right? Not having the cost. What's it going to cost? How do you all navigate through that early on? Well, I mean, this goes right back to the Part A contract. We want to have a cost estimator, preferably a contractor there right from the beginning. Mm. 
So in fact, we are trying to have the bankers there right from the beginning too. Wow. Because they're a major influence, obviously, on whether projects go ahead. And even how projects are, even how money is distributed. I mean, schematic design and an integrated process is, you're probably spending 35% of the fee instead of 15. Hmm. But you're saving so much at the end. And we find generally, we just did a project where we saved 25% of the design budget because of this process. And I know others have reported over the years they're saving at least 10% because getting people sequencing all their work in parallel and then you know, feeding all this information to each other and having these small integration meetings and larger integration charrettes prevent, and then weekly calls, while it sounds like a burden, it's incredibly effective in terms of avoiding missteps and working backwards. Because typically the typical design process is you get to the end of DD and somebody says, oh, I didn't know it was going to look like that. <laughs> yeah. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, well, you got it. So actually, that's the biggest advantage of working this way is that people are really in alignment and communicate. As you said before, communication is the key. Yeah. You know, it's not that hard. This is not rocket science. It's just different. Yeah, and, and but, but like you mentioned before, the hardest part is to, to change the mindset. And so I think that's where, you know, a lot of challenges lie. Uh, and, you know, like with anything, I think people, and maybe sometimes that's where that lack of faith comes into play is, is to just try it, right? Right. If you haven't done it before at all. Just at least try it once and see the impact that it can have. So. Yeah, and with larger repeat clients, you probably have an opportunity to do that. Yep. You know, I mean, obviously the one-offs, are, they're going to be much more nervous. But the more we do this as firms, and it's happening, people are getting more and more comfortable with integrated design. And obviously the IPD process with, with the AIA is, you know, that, that's a legal contract basis for sharing risk, right? So that adds some complexity that I don't particularly think is necessary. But if it works for people, that's great. Because it gets people communicating in a much more robust way than they would have before. So the more and more of us doing this, the more it's going to change the nature of practice. My attitude is I don't ask for permission anymore. When a client comes to us and says, how do you know, we want you to do this work. We say, well, this is the way we do the work. There's not, it's not a discussion. Oh, do you want an integrative process or not? Why would I ask that? Right. I don't ask my electrician how electricity works when they come in to do work. <laughs> yeah, that's, I like that analogy. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, it all boils down to, to how committed are you to your mission and values to, yes. to hold up that framework. Right. So like you, you said earlier, you sometimes you have to be willing to turn down or turn away a client to stay true to that. And I think some people waver at times. Oh, a lot. You know, <laughs> we are, you know, we're we, architects are interesting. We're, we want to be a creative force and yet the dominant profile in the industry is we're service, right? We're service oriented you know, serve our clients. But when the client asks me for sustainability, I'll do it, right? You hear that? I hear that all the time. It drives me crazy. So no, you don't ask for permission to do sustainability. It's that, you know, if climate change is real, and most people think it is, I think, then this is not something you ask permission to do. It's like saying, well, can the building fall down in five years? Oh, it's okay. Because <laughs> you didn't ask for a building that's going to stand for 20 years, just wanted a building that was up. I mean, it's, it's at that level of, it's really at that level of silliness. I see. 
Well, um, I've got one last question for you. And I think I already know what your answer is going to be to this. So you're familiar with uh, lead version four and how they've added in the integrated design process credit. Yep. What are your thoughts on that? And could it be improved? Oh, of course. And that credit came out of the ANSI standard work, by the way, directly came out of that work. And it's been modified over the years. It's basically, I'm not familiar with it right now. I actually don't do lead projects anymore. So, so, just, and I want to explain that. I think lead's important, but I think much more important is being able to tell the evolving story of your building. So we really encourage our clients not to depend on a certification, but to actually publish and continually publish how they're improving those domains. Right. People generally say, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> a lot of sense. But the integrated process credit was one where we were actually using some level of evidence-based you know the criteria credits used to be are in the realm of have a charrette right somehow that meant you were doing integrative design no it meant you were having a charrette and maybe <laughs> not a very good one but you weren't doing an integrated process so an integrated process is having a continual process of integration now how do you prove someone's doing that doesn't really matter because they could actually be having one of those charrettes where uh are we going to go up to the bicycle racks Bicycle racks, anybody? Bicycle racks? No? Okay, no bicycle racks. So those kind of, those are not thinking workshops. That's just right. road checklist. But that's the way a lot of charrettes were handled and have been handled, maybe still are. So the idea of a, of a credit that actually might have had some merit is that you actually did what you said you were going to do. Like maybe we are achieving a 90% energy reduction compared to ASHRAE, mm-hmm. a 90.1. And so where did we start? in terms of this building performance and where did we end up? Can you show it? Can you demonstrate an arc? Now, I don't know if that's the way the credit is still written for energy, but the whole point was that you were demonstrating some, cause that, you know, what really matters is you're actually succeeding. I don't call it, call it Fred or call it, you know, call it integrative design. I don't care. As long as you guys are working together and you're not going to achieve 90% energy efficiency unless you're doing some level of integrative process. Right. right? So the proof is in the pudding and, it, and I don't know where the lead criteria is right now, are right now, but if they're not just, if they're not validating it by some level of performance, then it's kind of, uh, it's just airware. Yeah, I agree. And you made me think about the fact that, you know, I wonder when, and I'm sure it's probably not anything rigorous because it's not a, a really technical credit per se, what kind of evaluation goes into that as those lead reviewers or GBCI reviewers are going through that one in particular? And maybe even what kind of comments could come back or clarifications could come back on a credit like that, right? Yeah. Just made me think, so. Well, it's a great teaching opportunity, right? That was the whole point. And in fact, this is what's so frustrating about the council. I don't, don't know if you, in your experience, Mike, is the, are you able to talk to any of the reviewers you are. So I know that if you're a proven provider, you do have kind of exclusive access to talk to some of the reviewers before you even submit a project. If you have certain Great. inquiries. So gr- glad to hear that. And yeah. And, and they've also added for, so every green build a couple of months before you're actually able to sign up for a session. Uh, I think it's out at 30 minutes uh, or you can do multiple sessions to sit down with the reviewer and it could be on a particular credit category or a credit project specific or just a general question and sit with them face to face at the conference if you're going. So I think mm-hmm. that I've done that a couple of times and it's very, very useful. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Because it used to be you could not do that. <laughs> and which misses the point about developing capability, right? And so that's the opportunity with these criteria is to be able to be taught. And, and hopefully that's, that's a more robust relationship now. Great. Well, I enjoyed having you today. And uh, definitely would like to pick your brain on a couple more things. But I think we'll wait for another session on that. And uh, we want our listeners and viewers to be able to uh, tap into some of the resources. So we'll definitely look forward to posting that. And um, you have a great week. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to 3P Theory with Mike Brown. If you like our show and want to know more, check out buildingiqpodcast.com or please leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Join us next time for more insightful knowledge on high-performance building design.